Let's say a quick prayer together. Father, thank you for this chance uh, to come into your house, uh, to worship with our brothers and sisters, to partake of your divine supper, and to hear your word preached. We pray that you would bless us now, open my lips, open our hearts, our minds, and change our lives. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we are going to start off this morning with a question. And not with a rhetorical question either. This is a real question that I want your feedback. I'm going to be asking you to vote. Now, before you have a panic attack, I'm going to make it very easy. I'm only giving you two choices, and neither one is completely incorrect. Another one is necessarily absolutely correct. Uh, if you're joining us on YouTube Live, you can type in your response uh, in the chat if you would like. If you're watching it later, not on YouTube Live, but later in the day, you can leave it in the comments section but I will probably not check it uh, beyond this morning. All right, so the question is, whenever you heard this passage read, or whenever you came to it for the first time, what struck you about this passage? Did you happen to see this as three or four separate teachings from Jesus, or did you see it as one fluid narrative? Now, if you'd like to open the Bibles and, and have a look, feel free, so you can be confident in your vote casting. Uh, the passage is Luke 17 and the first 10 verses. Feel free to use the, the Bible there or use your phone. I'll assume you're looking at your Bible app, not Instagram. All right, so uh, do you think that option A, the first option we'll vote on, do you think that, this, that these are independent teachings, something like a proverb? Uh, we read the book of Proverbs. We don't necessarily see connections between the verses. They're just words of wisdom. They were supposed to chew on and meditate. So the, the first section is like the first two verses of this passage. Jesus warns that temptations are sure to come. Uh, the next few verses are teaching about forgiveness and repentance. The next few verses, verses 5 and 6, are about faith, having your faith increased. And the final chunk is about being a humble servant or an unworthy servant. Or do you tend to see this as a narrative? Okay, so we're going to vote. Don't look around. Make up in your mind. You see these as independent chunks or as a narrative. Don't look around. And if you're the only one voting for one, it's, it's okay. All right. You guys need more time? Or are you ready to, ready to cast the votes? All right. I, th I think you guys are ready. Nobody's objecting. All right. So who would say, A, I think these are independent chunks. I think these are independent chunks. Don't be shy. Be bold. Be brave. Raise your hands. There's only two options. I'm not giving you, a, you know, an unsure option. Okay, good. And then who would say, well, I think this is more of a narrative. Feel free to slip your hand up in the air. Oh, wow. Well, I, I am very impressed uh, because most, uh, there, there's actually scholars on both sides of the argument. Some say that this, these are just independent sections. Some say that these flow together as a narrative. There's actually more scholars who say that these are independent sections and there's fewer scholars who say this run as a narrative. Well, I've kind of explained what the general outline of these are. There's a section on temptation, forgiveness, faith, and service. But the view of the narrative I find to be a little bit more intriguing. Take a look with me at the first section. We see Jesus come and he is giving a warning. He says that temptations are sure to come. It's famously been said, I think, by Ben Franklin, but uh, people attribute it to Mark Twain, that there are two things that are certain in life, death and taxes. Well, here Jesus is saying that there is something else that is certain in life, and that is temptation. 
You think about the Lord's Prayer. We are commanded to pray that temptations do not come into our lives, but that we are delivered from them. But the word here is actually slightly different than the word that is used in the Lord's Prayer. Some of your translations might have the word stumbling block instead of temptations. So the idea here is that you would be walking along a path and you're just minding your own business, enjoying your day, maybe engaged in a nice conversation with your friend, and there is a rock you don't see. You trip over this rock, everything in your hands goes flying, and you stumble. So in the Christian life, something grabs you by surprise, there's a stumbling block, and it makes you change and fall down. So it could be a stumbling block, but the Greek word is actually scandalon. Now, I'm 100% sure that is not how you pronounce it in Greek either, but hopefully you can see that that is connected to our word for scandal. This is something scandalous that comes into the lives of the church, and Jesus is telling us to be on guard. And he particularly tells us not to be the person who allows scandals to come in. Don't be the person who becomes a stumbling block for other people. Now, throughout this section, there's some very severe warnings. And Jesus gives us a very severe warning here. Did you notice it? He says it would be better if you were dead than if you became a stumbling block. The imagery he uses is having a stone tied around your neck and hurled into the sea. One commentator says that Jesus is actually advocating for suicide here. Not literally suicide. It's like whenever he says, if your right hand causes you to sin, chop it off. If your eye is causing you to sin, pluck it out. Jesus doesn't really want you to pull out your eyes, cut off your appendages, or commit suicide. But it would be better for you to be dead, to kill yourself, than for you to become a stumbling block for the little ones, for the people that are Christ's sheep. So what stumbling block does Jesus have in mind? This must be a very serious stumbling block if he's saying it's better to commit suicide than to be this type of temptation or scandalous person. What do you think this serious stumbling block is? Do you think it is murder, you shall not murder, or maybe stealing or adultery or one of the other Ten Commandments? Well, keep reading. Take a look at what he says in verse 3. He says, pay attention to yourselves and make sure that you are forgiving one another. He actually gives you a command to forgive. Very end of verse 4, he says, you must forgive. He actually uses the future tense, so he's, he's kind of talking like a Jedi to his disciples. He says, you will forgive. There's not an option here. This is what a disciple is supposed to do. If somebody sins against you seven times, you're supposed to be forgiving. You know, this is also in the Lord's Prayer. If you remember, you're supposed to ask for your forgiveness of sins, but you're also supposed to be forgiving other people. The two are correlated. You're forgiven in Christ, and you forgive other people as he has forgiven you. Christ wants his disciples to be a testament of this unity and of this forgiveness. Right before Christ goes to the cross, he offers a prayer for his disciples, for his church. And he says, Father, I pray that they would be one, even as you and I are one. I pray that they would be unified. And whenever we have unforgiveness as Christians, we are not walking in our oneness. But he gives this other serious command here. He says that you're supposed to forgive seven times in a single day. 
If somebody comes and sins against you seven times and they repent, you are supposed to forgive them. Now, that sounds quite difficult, doesn't it? Imagine being a kid at recess, and the bully comes and puts a kick-me sign on your back seven times. And you get kicked all day because this bully continually puts a kick-me sign on your back, but he apologizes after every time, and you are commanded to forgive. Maybe you have seen the movie Silence, or read the book Silence. I don't want to ruin it for you. It's an excellent movie. I'd love to share it here at church sometime. It's about a missionary from Portugal that goes all the way to Japan, uh, I think in like the 15th century, so 14th, or 16th century, something like that. So not an easy time to be traveling from Portugal to Japan, needless to say. And while this missionary is in Japan, he's facing all of these difficulties, all of these trials. And one of the trials there is that this Japanese guy who converted to Christianity keeps betraying him, keeps handing him over to the authorities like Judas did to Christ. But after he does this, this guy comes back repentant and he asks the missionary for forgiveness. And the missionary is just going crazy. He's like, why do you keep betraying me? But I have to forgive you. And he's caught in this tension. And I think the disciples here are caught in the same tension as well. We've heard it said that to err is human, but to forgive is divine. And the disciples are thinking, I can't forgive seven times. This idea of seven is not limited to seven. It's just this massive number that you're continually supposed to be forgiving. And the disciples are like, I can't do this. So do you see how they respond to this commandment to forgive? The commandment is given at the end of verse 4. And in our next section, verse 5, Jesus says, or the disciples or apostles say to Jesus, Lord, increase our faith. So I see this as a request. Jesus gives a very difficult command, and the disciples realize, I can't do this by myself. I need more faith. God, give me more grace to do this. Now, I, I think this is a very good thing. Uh, we should all be praying that God increases our faith, that he gives us more grace. But I don't think Jesus is very impressed with their request. He's not concerned about the amount of faith that his disciples have, whether it is some massive pile of faith or just a simple tiny seed of faith. Jesus seems to commend the small amount of faith, not necessarily the large amount. I think what Jesus is saying, it's not how much faith you possess, it's more what are you doing with the faith that you have. He's telling you to exercise your faith. We're all born with the same amount of muscles in our body, unless there's some abnormality, right? But the one who takes their muscles and puts them to good use, who exercises, who lifts weights, who, you know, climbs mountains, who goes for, you know, jogs and whatnot, well, their muscles are going to be more developed. They're going to be able to do more amazing things. They're going to be able to do cooler things, right? So I think Jesus is saying it's not how much faith you have. It's what are you doing with your faith? There is the objective faith of, the, of Christianity that we believe and uh, hold our, our personal faith in. But it's not only a static relationship between what you believe and what you're supposed to believe. It's how are you moving in that faith? How are you exercising that faith? What are you doing? Where are you working out and how are you working out? What equipment are you using, so to speak, as you exercise? Jesus tells us to focus our faith on a tree. 
He says if you have a small amount of faith, you're going to be able to tell this mulberry tree to be moved from the dirt and be planted over here in the sea. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says the same type of thing, except that your small amount of faith would be able to move an entire mountain from point A to point B. Now, I don't think that this imagery is to be taken literally. Uh, I don't think any of you have moved mountains or trees uh, by your faith. Uh, Neither have I. But I think this is a figurative thing that we're supposed to be doing with our faith. We're supposed to expect amazing things whenever we walk and exercise our faith. Throughout the Bible, there are plenty of pictures of of trees, particularly planted by water or by seas. And I think Jesus is bringing this imagery to bear on this passage. We see the first tree in the book of Genesis, around four rivers in the creation story. It is the tree of life that you can eat from. And we see that same tree again in the book of Revelation. Whenever we get a sneak peek into heaven, there at the throne of God, there is a river coming forth from the throne, and right next to it is the tree of life. It reminds us of the tree that we see in Psalm 1. It is like a person who is righteous. They are like a tree that is planted by water. It has a fresh flowing stream of supplies that becomes strong and powerful. But my favorite tree that we see in the Bible, at least in the Old Testament, is whenever we are in the wilderness. Whenever Israel is there, they're they're exhausted. They've come through the Red Sea. They have gone through all this excitement, and now they're thirsty. They're walking around the desert. It's dry. They're thirsty, their kids are complaining, and they finally come to a source of water. They go to it, they try to drink from it, but the water is rancid. They can't drink it. How disappointing is this? It's like all those cartoons where they're wandering through the desert, they see a mirage, and then they get there and they're disappointed. Well, there is a tree lying nearby that they throw into the water, and the bitter water becomes sweet. All of these are amazing things that were done in faith, And that's what the disciples are commanded to do. They're commanded to do amazing things in faith. But then finally, in our last section, there is a reminder that even though we do amazing things, we are only humble servants. And we're to act as humble servants. Now, I don't think we particularly like the word servants. We don't want to be associated as servant or as slave. But the ancient world didn't see this as such a big deal as we do. We have a very different history about slavery than they did. To be one of God's servants, or to be his slave, was actually a good thing. Uh, One of the church fathers that I frequently return to is named Gregory of Nyssa. And uh, Gregory of Nyssa was a bishop in modern-day Turkey. And somebody from one of his churches wrote him a letter asking him, how can I live a How can I become like Jesus commands us? He commands that we become perfect. So how can I live a perfect life? Well, Gregory of Nyssa has a very interesting response. And his response takes place in a book called The Life of Moses. This is what Gregory of Nyssa wrote. He he goes through the entire life of Moses and sees all these different steps in his life. You You think about his miraculous birth, how he's put in a basket and sent down uh, the river. You know, he uh, you know, turns his staff into a snake. He, he talks to God in the burning bush and talks to God in a cloud, you know, on the mountain. So what Nissa does is he, t- he takes all these events of Moses' life, and then he connects it to our lives and shows how we can live a virtuous life like Moses. 
And he, he connects uh, just one of them is, you know, the idea of Moses being born. Uh, kind of the objection is that, is that none of us can, you know, go back and choose how we're born, right? I don't think any of us were, were born whenever somebody was trying to kill all the baby boys uh, or girls that were being born. I don't think any of us were put into a basket and sent down, you know, the river. So the question is, well, how can we copy Moses in his birth? And Nissa says, well, that would actually correspond to baptism. We can choose to be baptized if we're not already. And that is like identifying with Moses in his birth. So Gregory of Nyssa goes through the life of Moses, showing all of these connections. And at the very end of this long discourse, he holds up one title or one aspect of Moses' life that is the greatest aspect that all Christians should emulate. Moses is called a servant of Yahweh. And Gregory of Nyssa says there is no greater title than to be called a servant of the Lord or a servant of God. It means that you have abandoned your love for the world, that you have stopped caring for the food of this world and you desire to eat spiritual food. You've given up the comforts of this luxurious world and you're looking forward to true luxury. Gregory of Nyssa says that the goal of the Christian life is to be a servant. Here is a quote from the end of this discourse. Gregory says, I mean by goal that for the sake of which everything is done. For example, the goal of agriculture is to enjoy its fruits. The goal of building a house is living in it. The goal of commerce is wealth. The goal of striving in contests is the prize. In the same way, too, the goal of the sublime way, which is the Christian life, this, this great life, the goal of the sublime way of life is being called a servant of God. Along with this honor is contemplated an end, which is not covered by a tomb. It refers to the life lived simply and free from evil appendages. The goal of the Christian life is to be free from sin and alive to Christ, to be a servant of the Lord. I don't think any of us will be moving literal trees with our faith. But like Moses, we will do great things in faith. We all have the ability to stand up to tyrants. We all have the ability to help set the captives free. And as we do these great things, we will be only acting as unworthy servants. In all of Moses' greatness, he was still called the most humble person alive. And that is how we are supposed to act as we work in faith. Now, I think the focus of this passage, even if we take it as a narrative, I think the focus of it is forgiveness. I think it is about restoration. I think Jesus wants his disciples to be a community of restoration. And I think he gives us two or three points to really focus on and meditate about what does it mean to be a community of restoration. We'll take a look at verse 3. He commands us to rebuke one another. I think this means that we ought to love each other enough to rebuke them. Now, whenever I hear the word rebuke, I usually think of something harsh. One of my uh, uh, favorite novelists is John Steinbeck. And he has a book that's not super well-known, I don't think. It's called Travels with Charlie. And John Steinbeck goes on a road trip with his dog, Charlie. 
And uh, he just goes and does all these uh, crazy things. And one of the, the crazy things that, that he does is he goes to a Presbyterian church uh, here in New England. I think it was in New Hampshire or Vermont. I don't remember. And uh, Steinbeck wasn't particularly a religious man. Uh, but he said that he would go into these modern-day churches you know, decades ago, and the preachers would just try to make you feel good. They would just try to boost you up and tell you how special you are. But John Steinbeck really admired this Presbyterian minister. He says that he went in there, and from the first moment he started speaking, I felt horrible. He rebuked me, and he made me feel horrible for the whole 45 minutes, and I felt terrible for the next several hours. So John Steinbeck thought that was the idea of a church service, and that that was the idea of rebuke. At least that's what I think of when I think of rebuke, making you feel really bad for a while. But actually, the idea of rebuke is not like that at all. Rebuking is supposed to take place in a spirit of brotherly affection. You know, the brother or the sister that you really like, not the brother or sister you don't care about. Now, this is like how you would treat your best friend when you go to rebuke them. Imagine that your best friend or your sibling is about to marry somebody, and they don't realize it, but this person has a horrible black side, a horrible, a horrible dark side to their character. Maybe they have just a massive amount of gambling debt with the worst people you can imagine. And if your best friend or your sibling marries into that, they're going to be on the hook for all of this debt. Well, what would you do? Would you keep your mouth shut and let your friend walk into this trap? Or would you do everything you can to rebuke him and to get him to change his behavior? Or maybe you're driving in the car with one of your siblings. You guys are having a good time. You're singing about fancy like uh, Applebee's together and minding your own business. And you notice they start to turn down the wrong street. It's actually an exit ramp onto the highway. And soon enough, if you don't say anything, you're going to be on the road with all these Mack trucks and cars coming directly at you. What are you going to do? Are you just going to mildly say, oh, don't turn down the street? Or are you going to rebuke them like your life depends on it? Well, I hope that you choose to rebuke them in brotherly affection, out of love because you care for this person. In Greek, the word for rebuke has the root word for honor. So whenever we rebuke, it's not just that we're rebuking a brother or a sister or even a friend. We're rebuking somebody that is royal. It's your little sister about to get married to somebody evil like Rasputin. Now, you're a prince and she is a princess, and you have to defend the family honor. You're going to step in the way, and you're not going to let that marriage happen. You're going to rebuke her. And it's not just your brother about to turn down this wrong ramp onto the, you know, the wrong way of the highway. It's a prince with all these cameras around, all these media outlets, and he's going to be humiliated, and your entire family is going to be humiliated of course you're going to step in and rebuke them. But it's not just their honor you're concerned about. It's not even just the honor of the church. It's the honor of Jesus Christ himself that you are trying to uphold. In the book of Acts, Jesus and the church are seen indistinguishable from one another. Whenever Paul is persecuting the church, whenever he's locking Christians in prison, Jesus comes to him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus doesn't see a difference between himself and his church. The church is his bride. They have become one. The church is his own body. So whenever we see them, see other Christians acting like broken pieces of pottery as opposed to the united pot of Christ, well, we are called to rebuke them in brotherly affection 
with the purpose of restoration. And as we rebuke, there is another purpose in mind, another goal. And that is to see our brothers and sisters come to repentance. To have them change their mind. To go from walking down one way to completely changing their lifestyle and going another way. Now the idea of repentance is inherently humbling. Uh, There's an author that I like named Henry Nowen. And he says that somebody who is truly humble will never be humiliated. Think about that. Somebody who is truly humble will never be humiliated. The two go together, humiliation and being humble. We're called to be a humble people that are quick to repent whenever we are rebuked by brothers and sisters. Now, the idea of repentance is something that is countercultural. We grow up hearing that we have good hearts, and then we need to follow our dreams and not listen to people and just do what we want to do because we are good. Now, there's a lot of truth to that. We were made in the image of God, and we are good. But one of the chief characteristics of Christians is that we are to live a life of repentance. If you want to become a Christian, it's quite simple on the one hand. All you have to do is repent. But on the other hand, it's quite challenging, right? Because you have to repent. You have to become humble. You have to say, God, I want to change my life. I want you to change my life. But that's not just the entrance into the church. No, the Christian life is continually filled up with seasons of repenting. We just entered the season of Lent. We usually think of Lent as giving up you know, our sweets or our alcohol or you know, cigarettes, something like that. But actually, the purpose of Lent is not just to give up something. The purpose of Lent is to have a see or go to enter into a season of repentance and humility before God. So go ahead and give up your alcohol and give up your sweets for Lent. That's totally fine. But every time you have a craving for what you've given up, repent for all the things that you have done wrong. Repent for not being a better spouse. Repent for not being a better parent. Repent for not being a better child. That is what the season of Lent is for. Christians don't just repent during Lent. They repent their entire lives. In Luke chapter 18, you're going to read what has been uh, become uh, the Jesus prayer. Whenever there is a tax collector in the temple who cannot even lift his eyes to heaven, and he says, Lord God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Since the 4th century, this prayer has been prayed every day by people. They change it, though. They say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, Have mercy upon me, a sinner. So one of the chief characteristics of the church is to repent. And Jesus says, anytime somebody repents, you must forgive. Which kind of brings up an interesting objection. Does this mean if somebody does not repent, that you don't need to forgive them? That you can hold on to this grudge down deep because they didn't do their job? Well, I think if we think of ourselves as a community seeking restoration, I don't think we will answer that question positively. See, the person who does not repent, they have excluded themselves from the people of God. They're the ones who decided to take on another characteristic. Rather than enter through humility and repentance, they have decided to walk away. So on one one hand, you can't fully welcome them back in because it's designed to be a relationship and they don't want to be in. But on the other hand, I think what Christ is telling his disciples is that he wants them to have a heart that is inclined towards repentance. 
I think Jesus is saying he wants his disciples to have the heart of God. In Isaiah 65, 2, there is a verse where the Lord is speaking through Isaiah. And he says, all the day long, I have held out my hands to nations that did not love me, that did not want to come to me, that wouldn't repent, that wouldn't come to me. Yet God is there with his hands open, ready to receive them. He is a God that is inclined towards forgiveness, and he wants us to be inclined towards forgiveness as well. We ought to be seeking restoration regardless of if the other party wants it or not. We ought to be free. We ought to be a community of love and a community of restoration. Now, at the beginning of this, I asked you which way you saw this passage. If you read this passage as parables, or excuse me, as proverbs, they're broken up into three or four chunks, or if you read it as a narrative. But there is also another way to take a look at this passage, and that is to read it Christologically, not just to see Christ talking, but to see how this passage brings Christ about. I said in Isaiah 65 that God says he held out his hands all the day long. Well, this is a metaphor in the Old Testament, of course. God does not have hands. He is a spirit. But that changes with the birth of Christ. Whenever Christ was born, it was God taking on human flesh and thus human hands. When this happened, Christ became the stumbling block. Christ became the scandal of history. God became man. He became that millstone that was rejected and thrown into the sea on our behalf. That rejected stone became the cornerstone, became a puzzle piece of the new humanity. God received hands when he was born in Jesus Christ, and he let us take those hands and nail them to a tree. And while he was nailed on that tree, he said, Father, forgive them. Before anybody uttered a word of repentance, there he was, inclined towards forgiveness. And from that tree flowed a river of life from the side of him, of blood and water, which we drink and have new life. Because Jesus Christ himself is the tree of life. He is the one that we eat of, and he is the one that we drink of. He is the tree that is thrown into the rancid waters of humanity. and He is the one who makes us new and sweet. He is the master whom we follow, but not as a tyrant. He is the master who bends down and washes our feet. He is the king of restoration, and he is restoring all things in himself. And he has invited us to be his vice regents, a community of restoration. Let's pray. Almighty Father, who loves us and restored us in Christ Jesus, we ask that you make us instruments for your ultimate restoration of all things. Make us a community that lovingly rebukes one another, that humbly repents of our sins and eagerly forgives and embraces. We pray this that we may be a testimony of your redeeming power and your eternal unity in the Trinity. Through the power of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.